Philippine President Ferdinand Marcos Jr. visits Washington, Singapore's decision to execute a citizen on drug charges, and a record heat wave in the region. All this and more on today's episode of Southeast Asia Radio. I'm Karen Lee, and may the 4th be with you. On today's show... 9-11 definitely changed the landscape of the region, and it reshaped a lot of policies in the region. And then we had the start of what we're now going through, U.S.-China tensions, and COVID, of course. That was co-host Alina Noor on three events that have shaped Southeast Asia in the 21st century. This week's episode is all about answering listener questions, and we cover a lot of ground. First, though, the headlines. Today, to help me read the headlines for our one-year anniversary episode, who better to welcome back than my predecessor, my role model, the OG host of this podcast, Simon tran Hudes. Simon is a former research associate with the Southeast Asia program at CSIS and is currently a trade policy research coordinator with USTR, though I have to issue the standard disclaimer that he is here in his personal capacity and everything he says reflects his own personal views and not those of the U.S. government. Hi, Simon. Hey, Karen. First of all, thank you for the disclaimer. Second, thank you for inviting me back. I love what you've done with the place. And also, may the fourth be with you. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm so glad we could have you on before you jet off to Singapore for the latest round of IPEF negotiations. Since I can't ask you about that, and I'm also on an undercover mission to turn Southeast Asia Radio into a food podcast, I have a very important question for you. Which country has the best chicken rice? So this might get me in trouble because, as you noted, I'm headed to Singapore very shortly, but I would have to say Thailand has the best chicken rice, for sure. That is the correct answer, and I'm glad you said that. Otherwise, I would have had to end the segment early. (laughs) All right. Glad I can stick around. First up on our headlines, I know our most recent episode was all about the Philippines, but we would be remiss not to mention President Ferdinand Bongbong Marcos Jr.'s official working visit to Washington, which will have wrapped up by the time this episode is released. During the four-day visit, President Marcos visited the White House, the Pentagon, the Hill, and even CSIS. Deliverables that were announced largely focused on expanding the U.S.-Philippines alliance beyond the security relationship and covered clean energy, trade, and people-to-people ties. I think it's worth mentioning what happened before this visit, though, which is unfortunately a topic we cover too often here. That is to say, tensions between the Philippines and China in the South China Sea. Last Sunday, a Chinese Coast Guard ship almost collided with a Philippine patrol vessel carrying journalists in the Second Thomas Shoal. Two Philippine vessels had broadcast their intention to conduct a site survey in the area, but Chinese Navy and Coast Guard ships shadowed the vessels, routinely blocked them, and ordered them to leave the waters several times over the six-day journey, ultimately culminating in a near miss. This is at least the fifth act of harassment around Second Thomas in the past year. All pretty scary stuff. Karen, what has been the USG response? Over the weekend, the State Department issued a statement in support of the Philippines and called for Beijing to, quote, desist from its provocative and unsafe conduct. Ironically, the incident coincided with a visit by Chinese Foreign Minister Qin Gang to Manila to shore up bilateral relations. China has unsurprisingly criticized recent developments in the U.S.-Philippines alliance, such as the announcement of new EDCA sites and the Balikatan joint military exercises. It seems like Minister Chin may have also been there to do damage control after Beijing's ambassador to the Philippines made controversial remarks about overseas foreign workers in Taiwan. During a speech earlier this month, the Chinese envoy had accused the Philippines of, quote, stoking the fire in regional tensions by expanding U.S. troop access to military bases through EDCA 
and advised Manila to oppose Taiwan independence if it cared about the 150,000 Philippine workers in Taiwan. President Marcos later summoned the ambassador to clarify his remarks, while other lawmakers have called for his expulsion from the Philippines. Pivoting to another story in the region, Singapore has come under criticism again for its harsh drug laws after the hanging of 46-year-old Tangaraju Supia last Wednesday. Tangaraju was sentenced in 2018 for abetting the trafficking of one kilogram of cannabis, over twice the minimum amount meriting the death sentence under Singaporean law. This was Singapore's first execution of 2023, following 11 hangings in 2022 and no executions in the two years before that. Simon, what has the reception of the case been like so far? So this execution has led to a backlash from organizations such as the UN, Amnesty International, and Human Rights Watch, as activists say that he was convicted on weak evidence. Given liberalizing reforms in the region such as the decriminalization of cannabis in Thailand and the abolishment of the death penalty for serious crimes in Malaysia, these organizations and individual activists have argued that Singapore should impose lighter sentences for drug-related offenses. Now, in response, Singapore's Minister for Home Affairs and Law argued that strong public support exists for the use of capital punishment in Singapore, citing their own surveys that showed that 83% of Singaporean respondents believe capital punishment deterred offenders and 87% were in favor of its continuance. So Karen, what are your thoughts? Is Singapore likely to implement any reforms in response to this criticism? The situation doesn't look likely to be resolved anytime soon, and certainly not through the courts. In 2022, a Malaysian citizen with learning disabilities was executed for drug trafficking, and the case also drew global attention for the sentence's severity. However, Singapore's highest court reiterated its previous position that the country's capital punishment laws could only be amended by legislation. I see. All right, last up, a record-breaking heat wave has been sweeping through the region, causing school closures and even fatalities. Laos, Myanmar, Thailand, and the Philippines have all recorded historic high temperatures of 42 degrees Celsius. Now that's almost 110 degrees Fahrenheit for Celsius illiterates like me. In Bangkok and several other provinces, Thai officials issued a health alert and warned residents against going outdoors. April and May are typically the warmest months of the year for most of Southeast Asia. As countries see temperatures rising before seasonal monsoon rains begin, how is this affecting daily life, Karen? Well, this level of heat is certainly no joke. Although high temperatures may seem like the norm for the region, the heat index, which measures what the temperature feels like with humidity, in many countries has hit 54 degrees Celsius, or almost 130 degrees Fahrenheit, and is in the range where those who exercise or work long hours outdoors are at high risk of heat stroke. Just last month, more than 100 students were hospitalized in Laguna Province in the Philippines due to dehydration during a fire drill. The Department of Education has now allowed schools to move classes online to safeguard the health of teachers and students alike. Long-range weather forecasts for the region also predict that this year's dry season will last longer than usual. In Cambodia, for example, rainfall is expected to be 20 to 30 percent lower than the average. Surging energy prices and electricity demand has impacted election pledges as well, with Thailand's cabinet announcing it would subsidize electricity costs for 23 million households over the next four months. The opposition Thai party has also said it would immediately cut power rates if it wins in the elections on May 14th. And those are the headlines. Thanks again so much for visiting, Simon. Thanks. It was uh, fun to dust off the old cobwebs and uh, try out radio one more time. So thanks again for the invite. Up next, Greg and Alina's Q&A with the CSIS Southeast Asia program team for the podcast's one-year anniversary. Welcome back. 
Welcome back to Southeast Asia Radio, everybody. I'm Greg Poling with the Center for Strategic and International Studies, joined as always by my co-host Alina Noor of the Carnegie Endowment. Howdy, Alina. Hi, Greg. And today is a very special episode, our one-year anniversary. So the entire CSIS Southeast Asia program team is here to interrogate us, and they're going to run the show. So I'm going to turn it over to voice of the podcast, Karen Lee, and she can introduce everybody. Karen? Definitely very excited for the whole team in D.C. to be in the studio together. I'm Karen Lee, research associate of the Southeast Asia program. And voice of the podcast. And voice of the headlines. (laughs) It's great to be back. My name is Danielle Fallon. I am a program manager and research associate with the Southeast Asia team at CSIS. Hello, everyone. Uh, I'm Andrejka Natalagawa, and I'm an associate fellow with the Southeast Asia program here at CSIS. It's great to be here. Well-known podcast hater and shark sock wearer, (laughs) Andrejka Natalagawa. And we have curated a quite a long list of questions, both from our listeners and from directors in the building. So I hope you both are ready to be in the hot seat again. So we'll start with a question from a director in the building on Greg's favorite topic. Hi, Greg. This is Bill Reinch from the Shoal Chair at CSIS. We've been doing a lot of work on the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework, IPEF, particularly looking at what the stakeholders on both sides of the Pacific are hoping to get out of it, and also trying to study how the negotiations are moving along. I wonder if you can say a few words about what you're hearing from Asian stakeholders and interested parties about how they see the negotiations going and what, how they would like to see them end up. Thanks. Alina, what are you hearing? Why don't you go first so you can be more optimistic, maybe? It's not a Southeast Asia radio podcast without a discussion about IPEF, is it? A gripe about IPEF, usually. But yeah, go ahead. (laughs) Sorry, yes, probably the right word. You know, it's funny because, uh, so I'm here in Singapore at the time of recording, and I actually spoke on a panel about economic resiliency. And there was not one single mention of IPEF apart from one speaker at the very, very end, and it was only in passing. And I don't know if this says something about the state of where people's heads are at in terms of IPEF in the region, or maybe I'm just not talking or surrounding myself with the right people. But I feel that we're still in a wait-and-see game with a lot of Southeast Asian stakeholders uh, vis-a-vis IPEF. I know there have been a lot of positive, encouraging, promising words coming out from uh, Washington and and particularly USTR. But I don't know if that same enthusiasm is being shared by Southeast Asian counterparts. It's especially, Damon, that you're in Singapore, where the next round of negotiations is going to kick off in like, I think, a week or two weeks. And nobody seems to be aware that IPEF is is a thing. Yeah, it's it's kind of hard to form judgments about an amorphous blob, right? Nobody knows what's in it. So how are they? Oh, they know what's not. Catherine Tai was nice enough to take another tour through the region last week so she could tell everybody to their face that the U.S. isn't interested in free trade, which, you know, feels like it could be done via phone calls. But it was nice for her to go out and let them all know personally. I've been watching the debate in the Philippines pretty closely. They just announced that RCEP, the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership, will be going into effect in July. They plan to make a decision in the next month about whether or not they're going to make a bid to join CPTPP. And I don't see a word about IPEF in the Philippine press. So I, I think that that's probably the case more or less across the region. All right. Moving ahead to a listener question from Brent Schuliger, who asks... With increased competition and tension between the United States and China looming, what lessons can Southeast Asian countries learn from the region's historical role in the non-aligned movement during the Cold War? What worked well and what didn't? 
Alina's probably better capable of answering this. I'll just point out that not all of the region was in the non-aligned movement. Some members, particularly the Philippines, were deemed a little too pro-American for the, the non-aligned movement. I guess the best I can say is that the memory, the symbolism of the non-aligned movement, and particularly Indonesia's role as a founding member, I think continues to resonate. You hear it a lot. You hear it a lot more in Jakarta than you do anywhere else in the region, I think, with good reason. But it does give a degree of hope, I think, to states in the region that if they manage to maintain their strategic autonomy once when trapped between two great powers, they can probably do it again. I thought the Philippines was a part of the non-aligned movement. Did it join? Probably. I, I thought yeah, I think so. maybe it was just the first Bandung conference that they received a cold shoulder. Because I thought there was a famous anecdote about them showing up and being told, what is the American lackey doing here? So I think they joined later on. Okay. Um, Maybe when they came to their senses. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> no, so I think there is uh, certainly a nostalgia for a return of something akin to non-alignment, right? Particularly now, given the fact that the non-aligned movement kind of blossomed during the Cold War makes it a little bit of an awkward comparison, I think. But I agree with Greg. I mean, certainly countries like Indonesia feel that if... ASEAN countries can retain or reclaim some sort of strategic autonomy, definitely exert some agency, then they might be able to navigate this version of whatever we're going through right now, whether it's a chill. We're told it's not a decoupling anymore, so I'm not quite sure where we're at right now. But I think Southeast Asian countries are a bit yeah, nostalgic for, for those days when some sort of strategic autonomy could be asserted. So this next question is from loyal listener Emerson Ahn. What do you consider to be the three most important developments that have shaped the region in the 21st century so far? And what do you think are the most important developments that will shape the region's future? The IPEF negotiations. (laughs) 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 Let me gather my thoughts. Uh, Alina? So 9-11, and then we had the start of what we're now going through, U.S.-China tensions, that's two out of three. I don't know, Greg. Can you help me out here? Yeah, I mean, 9-11 would have been my first suggestion as well, given the way that it reworked the the U.S. relationship with the region and the region's relationship with itself and with each other. I think the same global trend, so the rise of the digital economy and particularly the very rapid digitalization of major South Asian economies over the last decade, the death of China's charm offensive, which kicked off at the very beginning of the 21st century and was dead within a decade, in large part, but not entirely because of the South China Sea. But yeah, I think you're also right to point to the, the global financial crisis as, as one. And COVID, of course. And COVID, yeah. How, how can we forget about COVID? <laughs> uh, it's been so long. So going forward, what's going to be the most important? I guess the easy answer is U.S.-China competition is going to shape everything. The rise of the, the AI, the Terminators, when they eventually enslave humanity, that's going to be a pretty big deal, right? The robot killers, yeah. yes. But I think there is something serious in that. This whole generative AI thing and how it's going to play out is probably going to be big than it is now. I'd also... Maybe point, so if we're looking at the entire century, then we're going to have most of the region, at least, enter a developed country status. I mean, in Singapore already there, obviously Malaysia will be there in 
two years, but Indonesia, Philippines, uh, and Vietnam, and Thailand will all presumably graduate within like the next, I don't know where when Vietnam's is, but I know Philippines is going to enter upper middle income status in a year. These will be increasingly affluent and for the most part, still relatively young and productive economies that are going to keep booming long after, say, the Chinese economy stops and most developed economies in the West and Japan continue to slide. Unless, of course, we're felled again by, by another plague. <laughs> May I jump in and say climate change as well and how countries will respond to it and also quickly plug our upcoming decarbonization report on Southeast Asia? Karen's right. Climate I guess crisis. We, should, we should have said climate change is our number one, huh? Yeah, I think AI, yes. AI is probably pretty important. Too. AI is important, but I mean, no, you're absolutely right. AI is a, a global problem, obviously with climate change, but there is no other region on Earth that's going to face the climate crisis in quite the same way. Most of the most affected countries when it comes to increasingly severe storms are in Southeast Asia, Philippines, Indonesia, Thailand. Um, most of the cities most affected by rising sea levels and subsiding landmass, Jakarta, Bangkok, Manila are in Southeast Asia. The entire Mekong Delta is threatened in ways that are going to have huge implications on food security, as well as the development of Vietnam, at least. The most recent news also has been just terrible heat waves in the region, as well as ongoing air yes. pollution in a lot of cities. Alina, how has Singapore been? Has it been a lot hotter than, than usual? So I think I brought some respite relief because apparently before I arrived, it was unbearably hot, like hotter than it has been. It was something around... My grab driver told me it was around 34 degrees Celsius. Sorry, Americans, I don't know what that is in Fahrenheit. But 95, maybe? High 90s? Yeah. <laughs> that was a quick conversion off the top of your head. Wow. <laughs> Which is hotter than usual, much hotter than usual. Probably for around this month, yeah. We can move on to the next question. Um, it wouldn't be a Southeast Asia radio episode without talking about the South China Sea. So we have a question from another director in the building, Bonnie Lin from the China Power Project and host of the China Power podcast. She asks, has there been a shift in China's maritime or military activities in the South China Sea since the 20th Party Congress? Greg? <laughs> <laughs> you know, maybe I don't like being pigeonholed as the South China Sea guy. <laughs> Um, I mean, you but will answer. <laughs> <laughs> That's fair. So there hasn't been any radical shift that we've seen, meaning we over at the Asia Maritime Transparency Initiative team, like when I spin my hat around and turn into AMTI, Greg, there's been a continuation of the same trends we've seen at least since 2017 or 18, when the infrastructure on China's artificial islands was completed and you started to see increasing forward deployments of Chinese Coast Guard, militia, Navy in the South China Sea, and that's facilitated pretty much persistent, continuous Chinese patrols around the perimeter of the Nine Dash Line, particularly key Malaysian, Indonesian, and Vietnamese oil and gas fields, as well as a lot of the symbolically important reefs in the Spratlys, which includes maybe most dangerously Second Thomas Shoal, where the Philippines has its very fragile outpost on the Sierra Madre, the old World War II era tank landing ship with about half a dozen guys on hardship duty posted on it. So if you look at the numbers, it's a straight line. Yes, there were more ship days spent at those places last year than the year prior, and, and that continued after the party congress. There's been an increase in harassment of Philippine resupply missions to its outpost, but that doesn't necessarily seem tagged to the party congress. That's been going on for at least a year. Certainly predating the Marcos inauguration. There does seem to have been a maybe a slight 
cooling down in the harassment immediately after Marcos's inauguration last June 30th, but that didn't last long. That honeymoon was pretty short. Didn't even last through Marcos's trip to, to Beijing in January. So I would say yet again, as, as I always tell people, China's behavior in the South China Sea does not actually seem responsive to either domestic or international factors. It is more or less on cruise control. Xi Jinping has put in place a whole array of institutional incentives that push Chinese stakeholders to be ever more aggressive. And he is not in control of that needle day to day. Greg and Alina, here's a question from Paul Sarno. So he wants an update on BRI. Could you both give your perspectives on how is it going? BRI got a lot of attention in the early 2010s, but it seems that a lot of the hype and dialogue around it has died down recently. Anything that you have to share with us about that would be helpful. One of the difficulties, even early on in this whole BRI initiative strategy, was trying to figure out what constituted a BRI project as opposed to a project that was perhaps coordinated or was a result of a joint venture between two private companies from China and a Southeast Asian country for um, our purposes. And so classifying what was a BRI project, I think was part of the difficulty of measuring the success of the extent of the BRI in those early days. And I think to a certain extent, maybe even to a large extent, that still holds true today. And then, of course, we had the small matter of a pandemic, which threw a lot of projects off the rails for, for a while. The observation that there hasn't been very much hype about it anymore, I think, is, is true for at least a couple of those reasons. I think that that's right. The pandemic, certainly the kind of departure of Chinese managers and labor across the region was particularly visible in Southeast Asia and places like Myanmar and Laos, where projects underway came to a sudden standstill, and that hasn't entirely restarted. But the money is also dried up in a, in a very real sense. I mean, whether you look at lending by Chinese uh, development banks or investment, you know, equ new equity investments and, and the like, BRI, kind of peak BRI was 2016-ish. The hype, the right word for it, this idea that it was going to be a Marshall Plan on steroids for the region and would help meet the region's growing infrastructure needs has clearly not come to pass and isn't going to come to pass. And Chinese banks are not interested in taking on more bad debt. So instead, what you see is, I think, Chinese investment and Chinese loans being a important part of the puzzle for regional states, but only one part and not as important a part as they had hoped. I mean, and that's bad news for the region, frankly, because they need much more than is on offer from the multilateral development banks, the BRI, and by bi traditional bilateral donors and lenders, and it just doesn't exist. I will note that you do, though, still have a small number of strategically important, from Beijing's point of view, projects that are still receiving high-level impetus, the Vientiane to Kunming Railroad, the effort to extend that into Thailand, Bandung Jakarta Railroad is finally running, and, and they've renegotiated the terms, a renewed push by China to restart the China-Myanmar Economic Corridor to ensure Chinese access to Chokpu and, and the Indian Ocean. But those are the exceptions, not the rules. All right. Up next, we've got a question from CSIS's very own Australia chair, Charles Edel. Charles asks, Greg and Lena, congratulations on one year 
of Southeast Asia Radio, one of my favorites. I'd love to ask you guys about 15 different questions on AUKUS, but instead, I have a slightly different question. I'd be really curious to hear how the region is reacting to the range of activities we've seen nations outside of Southeast Asia take to strengthen their own security and their security relationships. Here I'm thinking about Japan, about Australia, about India, and to a growing degree, South Korea. How is Southeast Asia thinking about and responding to the spike in defense spending and the proliferation of new security arrangements? Is it engendering a rethink in any Southeast Asian capitals of their own security interests and where they might like to steer their own defense efforts? Thanks. With particular regard to AUKUS, we, we had a whole episode with Charles on this. I think most of the region has sort of just thrown their hands up and said, we'll see where this goes. Even Malaysia and Indonesia, I mean, Malaysia had slightly stronger words to say about it than Indonesia with this last round of AUKUS discussions. But right now, again, I think with details still coming out, a lot of countries are, they, they've just accepted that AUKUS is happening and the next step for Southeast Asian countries is to figure out what their own moves are, whether individually or collectively uh, within ASEAN. But with regard to some of the other developments apart from AUKUS, I mean, Quad, the Quad has been working on some non-controversial issues for the global comments. And so I think that's less controversial than AUKUS. But there are certain developments in the cyber realm that are beginning to pique the interests of Southeast Asian countries in a way that I never thought it would, to be honest. So Japan, for example, recently released its uh, national security strategy. And there's a lot of talk about an active cyber defense posture, which somewhat takes off from, you know, the U.S.'s defend forward or persistent engagement approaches to threats in cyberspace. And these are all really forward-leaning approaches which have previously really disturbed Southeast Asian governments. But given the intensity of attacks and threats that many government agencies in the region are facing themselves, I think these states, Southeast Asian states, are beginning to consider latching on to at least some of the elements of those kinds of postures. I would just add the Philippines as always is somewhat unique here. I mean, if you line up kind of Philippine public opinion and elite opinion about China right now, and then on the other side about things like AUKUS and the Quad, they're corollaries. So the Philippines under the Marcos government has not only tried to strengthen the alliance with the US, but has, has embraced AUKUS in a way that nobody else in the region has very publicly, has invited the Japanese to participate more in joint patrols in, in the South China Sea, is quietly negotiating a visiting force agreement with Japan, has done the same with Australia, already has a visiting force agreement with Australia, but is open to, to more Australian activity in the South China Sea, and seems to be overtly trying to signal its desire to be part of this broadening network of like-mindeds. And the symbolism here is 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 pretty clear. You know, the Korean president, I think, arrives today, tomorrow, for his five-day state visit, which he will advance the U.S.-Korea alliance, and then immediately the president will turn around and meet with President Marcos here in Washington to advance the U.S.-Philippine alliance. So there's, there seems to be a, a clear effort by the Filipinos to not just embrace the Americans, but to signal that they're part of this overall movement of networking alliances. 
So going back to the topic of energy transitions, here's Stephanie Siegel from the economics program at CSAS with her question. In light of the new Just Energy Transition Partnerships, or JETPs, announced for Indonesia and Vietnam this year, which will provide finance to speed the phase-down of coal and the rise of renewable energy sources, how do other countries in the region view JETPs? Are they an attractive model for engagement with JETP sponsors, which include the U.S. and Japan, among others? Or are countries in the region more interested in other incentives, such as green tech transfers and trade preferences? I don't know enough of the details of energy-related issues, unfortunately. There is always excitement in some countries in Southeast Asia about green energy, but I don't have an informed response to that. I haven't seen much discussion of the Indonesian-Vietnam jet peas outside of Indonesia and Vietnam, which is interesting because they are quite large. They got headlines, just like they did everywhere else when they were announced, but I don't hear a clamoring for where's our jet pea. The only logical place where I think you would see a jet pee in the short term would be the Philippines because it faces the same kind of energy crunch Vietnam does and the same need to to accelerate the shuttering of coal and the same shortfall in planned LNG. I could imagine that as we get more discussions between the US and Philippines and, and again, maybe kicked off by President Marcos's upcoming visit, we could move in that direction. But I mean, overall, I don't think they really care what the the acronym is countries want a lot more financing to facilitate the transition. I mean, one of the things that come back to the IPAF question, one of the questions we hear a lot is what the heck is pillar three supposed to be an IPAF, which is supposed to support decarbonization because everybody knows that pillar one on trade is going nowhere and pillar four on taxation. Fine. They're happy to have the conversation. We're getting a sense of what's going into the supply chain pillar. But nobody knows what ex- pillar three just a bucket of money. And in which case, if it's just a bucket of money, aren't there already uh, other buckets of money? Like, what does IPEF bring to the table? So there's always appetite. Dan and Karen, you held the pen on on the climate change report that Karen already plugged once. What are your thoughts? Yeah, my, my general idea is that JetP countries in Southeast Asia are, especially Indonesia and Vietnam, are interested in the idea of JetP. But it's largely just a pledge, right? Until... The U.S. and Japan and other countries can actually put the money where their mouth is, right, and show what type of investments that they're interested in making. Countries in Southeast Asia are are waiting to see where what's going to come from it, right? So generally supportive, but not entirely sure what the future of JetP will actually look like. And I agree with you that haven't really heard a lot about JetP outside of those two countries. And I think on Stephanie's last question about green tech transfers, from from what we've heard and um, the research that Karen and I have been conducting, I think it's generally dependent on where each country is in their energy transition. Like if we're talking about the Philippines, where 97% of their transition is conditional and based off of um, the financing that they get, I think they're largely just interested in whatever money is coming in, right? But you're also have to take into account countries like Thailand, where their energy transition is largely funded in-house, right? So they're looking for more green energy, tech capacity training, and technical assistance. So it really does differ depending on the country that we're talking about. I think Danny couldn't have said it better, so I won't add anything to that. Such a better answer than Alina and I gave. (laughs) Much, yeah. (laughs) We can definitely move on to the next question. It seems that a lot of our listeners are Indonesia hands, and we have another question from longtime listener Emerson An. 
So what do you see emerging as the most important issues for the Indonesian electorate in the upcoming presidential elections next year? What do you think will differentiate this election from years past? I feel it's going to be the economy still. You know, people are still coming out of the COVID slump and all governments in the region are trying to still revitalize their economy. The fact that Indonesia very successfully held the ASEAN chairmanship last year is leading the G20 process this year, gives you a sense of what their priorities are, not just for in the international platform, but also for their domestic constituency. And that is the economy. It's getting the digital economy up and running so that as many Indonesians can leverage off of it and grow their prosperity. I mean, I think that sounds right. All politics is about the economy. It's the economy, stupid, whether it's in Indonesia or the U.S. I mean, there will be distractions like Israel's participation in international sports for those who follow the U-20 saga and, and how damaging it was to Ganjar in particular. But I tend to think that those things are the wave caps and what really matters is bread and butter issues. Although it will be interesting to see what the role of identity politics and religion is in this election cycle, given its elevation in certainly the last election, really the last couple elections, and the fact that the previous Islamist coalition backed both Prabowo and Anis, and assuming that they both run, do they both try to compete for the religious right? Um, and where does that leave Ganjar? All of that will be interesting. Our next question is from Ellen Kim with the CSIS Korea Chair. By the time this episode comes out, Philippine President Bongbong Marcos will be wrapping up his visit to Washington. What's the significance of this visit and his meeting with Biden, and how might it impact the U.S.-Philippines alliance moving forward? It is symbolically a pretty big deal. Marcos gets the first individual working visit by a Southeast Asian leader, I think, right? And a Marcos returning to the White House is interesting symbolism. but. I mean, beyond that, it, one assumes, advances the ball further on this pretty remarkable trajectory of alliance modernization that we've seen since, certainly since Marcos's inauguration, but really extending into the latter year or so of the Duterte administration. So it follows up on the first two plus two in seven years, just last month, the bilateral strategic dialogue early this year, which built on the bilateral strategic dialogue of 2021. Maybe they'll make some announcements on the mutual defense guidelines, although I'm not necessarily counting on it. They might focus more on the domestic priorities that Marcos has highlighted, which are food security, economic growth. Those could dovetail quite nicely with the economic priorities of the Biden administration. And you could add in climate change. Doing this is important mostly because it sends a signal to both bureaucracies of high-level commitment to the alliance and probably helps grease the skids for everything else they're trying to do at the working level. So since this is Southeast Asia Radio's first birthday, we wanted to ask you what you both do to celebrate your birthday. Greg, a little birdie tells me that your birthday is coming up very soon. Do you have any fun plans? My birthday is coming up very soon. My birthday is Cinco de Mayo. So what I usually do is I defeat uh, French occupying armies. That's a Mexican history joke for anybody who's interested. <laughs> no, in reality, the, the days of me actually celebrating Cinco de Mayo on my birthday probably ended in my 20s. This year, 
So I actually, I have a couple of friends who have birthdays relatively close, and I believe one of them has arranged a birthday celebration for what I think will be his 40-something. Sorry if he's listening. I'll have to remember. But anyway, a dinner and drinks at Medieval Times, to which I have never been. And I understand that you're supposed to go to Medieval Times for the first time when you're a teenager. I'm also a vegetarian, so I'm not sure that eating like shanks of lamb or turkey or whatever it is you do at Medieval Times is going to be all that attractive to me. But that's what I'll be doing for my birthday weekend this year. What about you, Alina? Well, I'm in the region, and that's always a celebration for me. So staying true to Southeast Asia radio podcasts or roots, I guess. Nice. Andreka, to put you on the spot, is there any chance that you'll share your home-brewed mead with us for the next team birthday? <laughs> All right. So for context, I am currently home-brewing a batch of mead. 2023 is the year of fermentation for me. So I've, I've started pickling, starting to brew my own mead, and yeah, happy to share with the team. Wasn't this what you were supposed to do in 2020 and 2021? I thought the world has moved on. I, I'm behind the times, so up next will be sourdough as well. Nice. He he's likes be, to not be too mainstream. He's going to be the last person to discover sourdough. I can give you a start to, uh, to, to kick things off, Andreko. Uh, thank you. I'll, I'll take you up on that. All right, we've got another question from SD Chen, who asks, what are your current reading recommendations? current reading recommendations. I wish I had as much time to read new books as I actually wanted. I I would like somebody to read my Kindle library for me and then tell me which ones I actually need to read because it's growing much faster than I'm actually reading. Recent stuff, I can recommend How to Hide an Empire book by Daniel Immerwar if anybody hasn't read it yet and is interested in how the U.S. colonization of the Philippines fit into the broader U.S. imperial project of the early 20th century. You learned a lot about bat poop from that book. There's, you learned about guano from Daniel Moore, not from my well, the, book. The significance on, of guano, I guess. Okay, you should read On Dangerous Ground to learn about the role of guano mining in the origins of the South China Sea dispute. And then you can learn about the broader Guano Islands Act and why the U.S. has so many tiny rocks in the Pacific. Older book to that effect as well. I always recommend Stanley Carnot's In Our Image for those interested in, in the Philippines. And then on recent pieces, kind of on broader regional engagement, particularly U.S.-China competition in, in the region, both In the Dragon Shadow and In Beijing Shadow came out the same year with 2021 by Sebastian Strangio, now the diplomat, and our very own Murray Hebert, both pretty good surveys of the state of U.S.-China competition for influence in the region. Oh, and I'm sorry, I should really mention Charles Dunst's How to Defeat the Dictators, even though it doesn't cover most of the region. It does have a lot about Singapore. Charles is a big, big fan of Singapore's model of efficient autocracy, but also thinks that democracy is still the way to go. I read Vincent Bevin's The Jakarta Method a few years ago, and I still recommend that as something to be read because it opened my eyes a lot. And I wish I'd learned all that while I was still in school in Southeast Asia. That's one. The other one that's kind of on my list, but also that I've not actually read is, it's a little bit of a tome, but I feel that it would be really good context for understanding the history of the quote unquote global South. We hear a lot about that term these days. I'd like to read The Darker Nations, uh, A People's History of the Third World. It's going to be a bit of a heavy read, but I think it sounds like it's, it'd be really informative. So this is the last question we have prepared. I think my favorite that we received to the inbox from SD Chen. 
Do you have any advice for young prospective Southeast Asianists on finding a niche in D.C.? What are some growing areas of specialization and what are some that you think are a bit crowded already? How do you find the balance between specializing in one country and providing regional expertise? Alina, do you want to start with your your advice to the next generation of Southeast Asia hands? I would say don't study Southeast Asia from a China lens, please. Oh, I thought you were just um, going to stop halfway. Just don't study Southeast Asia. <laughs> don't come after our jobs. <laughs> <laughs> but also do study Southeast Asia from as much of a local perspective as possible because I, I think it really makes a difference. And invest in a Southeast Asian language because that will take you much deeper into regional knowledge and cultural knowledge that will help shape the expertise that you're trying to finesse. So my advice is going to be different, not contradictory, but different because as specifically asked about a niche in DC. And unfortunately, I don't think you can study anything in DC and hope to have policy impact these days without understanding how the China angle works in whatever your topic or regional expertise is. It doesn't, I, I wholeheartedly agree that you shouldn't come to Southeast Asia from the China angle, but you have to understand what the China angle is in Southeast Asia if you hope to impact policy, to kind of sell the importance of Southeast Asia in D.C. I also think that if you're going to be a Southeast Asia expert in D.C., unfortunately, you do have to kind of pitch yourself as a Southeast Asia expert, even though within the community, none of us actually believe that that's possible. If I walked into a room of Alina and my contemporaries and said, I'm a Southeast Asianist, they would laugh me out of the room as a dilettante because I'm not. And neither is Alina, neither is anybody else. We all have our own unique expertise. But when you go into a room in D.C., you're probably going to be one of the only two or three Southeast Asia watchers there. And you do need to know more about Laos and Brunei and Cambodia, even if you're an Indonesia hand or a Philippines hand than the China and Japan hands in the region. So you are expected to have that breadth of knowledge. Um, and you, so you, you kind of have to you know, wear two faces depending on which community you're speaking to. Oh, and, and as for which ones are oversaturated, the South China Sea. Get out. It's way past time. Somebody already wrote a book about it. I think all the answers are out there. So the opposite of that, areas that you think are, are promising and sort of are niches that haven't been as explored yet. We don't have enough Brunei hands around Washington. No, come back to me with a more serious answer in a minute. Alina, what do you think? I think, and this might seem strange for a place like DC because nobody really cares about the human cultural angle. A lot of the cultural experts on Southeast Asia are actually outside of DC, but they provide a really rounded understanding of the region that is often missing in DC. So if you're going to situate yourself in DC, Having that kind of knowledge would, I think, make you stand out a little more. I think we could see a lot more specialization on a lot of the global issues, whether it's digitalization or climate change or AI, as applied to Southeast Asia. I mean, the path that all three of you were taking in your careers are evidence of that. The application of these global trends in Southeast Asia is unique, as it is in every region in the world. And we're going to need people who focus a lot more on the intersection of these leading topical issues with regional expertise. The other thing that I think is sorely lacking 
across the U.S., but especially in D.C., is a greater historical understanding of U.S. involvement in the region. The bulk of Southeast Asianists working in the town today, I think, either got there via the post-9-11 global war on terror, or they are the generation that taught Alina and I, who came at it kind of post-Vietnam War. But the history has not, I think, been studied rigorously and comprehensively and, and internalized the way that, say, U.S.-Japan, U.S.-Korea, U.S.-China relations have been. And without that historical grounding, my area of most expertise in the Philippines, for instance, you Americans tend to come at it with a fraction of the perspective that their Filipino counterparts do because they're not taught the history the way that their Filipino counterparts are. Those were all of the questions we had for today. Thank you again so much to our listeners for submitting their questions and to the Asia directors as well for participating. It's our one-year birthday, but we hope to have many more in the future. And it was really great to have the team again in one room for this recording. And thank you, Alina, for joining us from Singapore. again for joining us for season two of Southeast Asia Radio. It doesn't have to be a celebration for you to write to us, so get in touch anytime at searadio at csis.org with your suggestions, questions, and comments. Yeah, also uh, do us a favor and subscribe and give us a rating on iTunes or Spotify or whatever streaming platform you listen to us on. And you know what? While you're at it, tell your friends about us. Our producers for this episode were Marla Hiller and David Lotfi, and our interns are Stephen Vo and Margaret Lin. Our co-hosts today were Greg Poling, Alina Noor, Andreka Nataligawa, Danielle Fallon, and myself. My name is Karen Lee. And I'm Simon Tranhutis. And we'll see you in two weeks for another episode of Southeast Asia Radio.